You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. You're listening to episode eight in the Ultimate House Hacking Guide for Denver. So in this episode, we do some long-term modeling for house hacking. So much emphasis is put on buying the first house hack and reducing your living expenses. But we talk about here what happens when you buy properties two, three, four, and really do that long-term chess game. Because you're buying this property and it's one chess move in a bigger chess game you're playing to achieve your financial goal. So we go through a couple models on here and really uh, dig into some long-term financial modeling, which is one of my passions. So enjoy it. If you got questions, please reach out to me. I really love discussing this stuff. All right, here's recording from me, Joe, and Jeff. All right, so let's jump into this module day because this is what I'm really excited to talk about. Uh, Out of all the topics, this is probably one of my most favorite just because I, I, you know, I got into real estate um, because I wanted to build long-term wealth and retire one day. And doing this type of planning is exactly how you start working towards that goal and eventually get to that goal. I have not met uh, many people. I can't think of anyone I've never met who's been built a successful business, built a successful stock portfolio, built a successful rental property portfolio that does not have a plan in place. Now, another common thing they have is they had a plan when they began, and then after they started, their plan has changed. And so while I was putting together uh, the information from this module today, I started building out a very, very in-depth uh, analysis to go through a couple different scenarios on building a rental portfolio through house hacking. And what was going on is I kept thinking of one more variable, one more variable, oh, one more thing here, one more thing here, and started getting really, really complex. And I was like, ah, oh, geez, this is just not going to translate well over a podcast. Um, or when people are trying to read this later, like it's just, it's too complex and too confusing. And I said, you know what? I need to go back and follow the keep it simple, stupid method and help people, you know, follow the very core basic things of buying your first property, then buying your second and buying your third. Cause at the end of the day, you can get really advanced and go on your, you know, figure about year nine, year 20. But the reality is in year two, your plans are already going to have change. So while I was preparing uh, for this module and these slides, it made me think of a few quotes. I used to read a lot of biographies uh, in high school and college. And so a few of my favorite quotes, uh, which fit very well for what I went through today and what many people go through when they start planning for their rental portfolio strategy. So the first one is by Ben Franklin. He says, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. So, hey, we all know the more you prepare, the better off you are. But then here's a counter quote from General Dwight Eisenhower. And his quote says, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless but planning is indispensable, which is almost an oxymoron, but it's a reality. I mean, Joe, you have plans. You know, as you write a plan, you implement it, and then what, by like week two, it goes perfectly to plan, right? Uh, no, no. <clears throat> I don't know what the next quote is, but I hope it's my favorite uh, from Mike Tyson, which is everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face, um, but you still want to have a plan, right? I have a plan for my business every single week, every single month, every single year, and you're going to follow that plan to the best of your abilities, but you're going to have to react. You're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to change. And if you follow your plan to the best that you can, you're going to get to the goal or somewhere near the goal. Um, so I love that, you know, preparing for battle always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable because that gives you that roadmap. Now you might have to make some twists and some turns and, you know, detours and reroute, but you're still going to get to that end goal. Yeah. And no, the third quote is not from Mike Tyson. It's from General George Patton. So his quote is, a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. And so it goes back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to have that baseline in place and go forward with it. And while I was going through my different iterations of building some models today, I wrote down my own quote. And it was, there are too many damn variables, but you need a starting point. So today, we're going to talk about that starting point and focus on a few key variables that you need to keep in mind. That way, uh, as you start planning, you keep focused on those. You don't get that uh, analysis by paralysis 
or the paralysis by analysis, I should say. And as you move forward every year, hopefully you keep these in mind, help you keep moving towards your goal. So when putting together your plan here, and this is specifically for house hacking, but really goes for other you know, planning for real estate as well. I came up with three important questions. What worked for your personal situation? As we've talked about in previous modules, this is a balancing act of investing and personal needs and wants while you're living in the property. So it, ultimately, it has to work for your personal situation. If it doesn't work for your personal situation, it's not going to be a long-term successful model. Now, I'm not saying you might think, oh, I will do this, and then you go do one property, and you're like, oh my gosh, I hate this, and you go to plan B. That's normal. That happens. I'm just saying every time you do it, you have to be realistic with yourself and say, hey, will this work for me? Will this work for my wife, my job, my dogs, my kids, whatever it is? The next important question, and this is more the financial question, is how will you save for the next down payment? Either the next down payment or your first down payment. And this is the immediate you know, goal that everyone should have out there. Great, I want to buy a first property. Or if you're in your first property buying your second, how are you going to fund that down payment? Because I don't care how detailed your plan is, if you don't have money in the bank to buy a property, well, that's a problem right there. The last important question is, how will you fund your operating accounts? In the previous module, we talked about the structures we use, which is all pretty much having like six to nine months worth of uh, funds in every single account. So I don't want you to hyper-focus on just buying that next property, but also keeping in mind, how can you mitigate your risk by keeping money in your operating account? Because the double-edged sword of using all this great low-down owner rock financing is that you're highly leveraged. So a great way to uh, minimize that risk is by keeping cash in the bank or being liquid in other forms. So that way you can uh, take care of any speed bumps that come along the way. So those are the three important questions that I always ask myself and my clients. Joe and Jeff, am I missing anything here? I know I'm missing something, but as far as like key questions, you guys have anything to add? I think you're spot on. And, you know, a lot of times people think about their operating accounts. They say, well, do I really need to have six months reserves? You know, what, what's the minimum? I get that question a lot where people ask me, what's the minimum that I have to have? All right. And the minimum you have to have to qualify for a loan is that six months reserves. But I, I think you want to have more, um, particularly in a time like right now, right? I've got a lot of clients um, that their tenants are saying, hey, you know what? Can I miss a month of my rent payment? Can I miss two months of my rent payment? My clients that are shrugging it off and moving forward just like normal are the clients that have a lot of reserves. My clients that are really tight on their reserves, they're the ones that are nervous. Um, so I don't think you're missing anything with the questions. And I think if, if I were a house hacker or an investor, which I am an investor, I would want to have a little bit more than I think that I need. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, that's uh, pretty much sums it up right there. If you... These questions are very key and um, more so in a time like this, it's better to be, you know, have more than have less and think of, you know, situations where, um, yeah, beyond the next down payment, beyond um, even thinking of the next property, just being prepared for the current property, because if you can't handle one mortgage payment, how are you going to handle the next one? Um, and if you're operating on thin margins or using all your money, all your savings just for that one property and not working towards building up to the next and establishing good financial saving habits, then uh, it will burn you down the line. Yep. And the last point on here is remember, all these aspects will change next year or next week or next day. As That's Joe right. quoted Mike Tyson... It's all good that first punch is thrown, and punches are always thrown on here. So to walk you through this house hacking spreadsheet model, I know a lot of people are listening to this on the podcast, uh, so you should be able to follow along as we talk about the numbers, but if you want to check out the recording, uh, definitely go to the show notes. There'll be a, a YouTube video there. We'll also have screenshots of the spreadsheet there so you can view the numbers as well. But I think we can do a good job of describing it. So Joe and Jeff, reminder, if you talk numbers, uh, definitely make sure we talk about this so people can follow along. So what we're going to do is in a couple modules ago, we used or we discussed a single family home in Aurora uh, that was a room by room house hack. 
So I'm taking those same numbers and I'm plugging it into this house hacking spreadsheet. And this is a spreadsheet that I built a couple of years ago that used Joe's spreadsheet as a base that does some modeling, some longer term modeling for buying a few properties in a row. And so what we're gonna do here is we're gonna plug the property into here and it's gonna follow the house hacking and the nomad strategy. So he buys the house, he lives in one room, has three roommates. And to be conservative, what I did is I said, hey, you got your first property, then in two years, you buy your next property. Then in two years, you buy your next property. Then in two years, you buy your next property. So we're not buying the property on day 366. We're actually buying the property two years out. And that's because the vast majority of people, they buy somewhere between like one to three years when it comes to buying the next property. Jeff, you're more the exception where you're buying properties like day 366 for your next one, uh, which is phenomenal. Um, but we're going to play here averages because I think if you can get an average return on investments, that's what builds wealth oftentimes. So we're going to show people what a realistic model can do. And then the other thing we're talking about here is every time you buy the next property, you're basically buying the same property. Um, it's just everything's gone up by that ap appreciation rate, by that expense rate. So we're assuming a, a similar house we're buying, similar numbers. But two years in the future, with our assumptions in there, so everything is more expensive, rents are higher, and expenses are higher as well. Um, if you wanted the spreadsheet, you can download it at denverinvestmentrealestate.com. Click on Spreadsheets. At the time of this recording, it's free for now. And in my fit of updating it for this module, I thought about not making it public anymore because I get a lot of questions on there. So I may pull it off for clients only, but for right now, it's free. So if you want it, definitely go grab a copy uh, and that we have a Excel file on your computer. So go into the spreadsheet. There's a lot of tabs on here and we're not gonna explain them, but a couple assumptions to go through on here is that we are assuming no property management. We are assuming that the house hacker can save $1,000 a month. And what that savings is, is that's his savings between not having to pay a full mortgage or full rental income on his own, plus extra savings he can put aside from his job, from whatever, to help buy the next rental property. And then another variable I have on here is what interest rate do you want to, how much do you want interest rates to increase, increase between one property and next property? So when I built this a couple of years ago, interest rates were really low, and I assumed interest would probably go higher. And Joe, what have interest rates done since two years ago? Uh, gone year down. Ago? Gone down yeah. significantly. <laughs> so I have 0% interest rate increases because we have really no idea what interest rates are going to do. But if you want to, you can actually have interest rates uh, increase from property one to property two purchase. And I think just as a side note, I think you should always factor in a half percent because we live in extraordinary times right now that interest rates have been declining and they're they are the lowest they've ever been, which is great. And could they go lower? Maybe. Is there an opportunity for them to go higher? Yes. For me, when I do my analysis, I would always assume that rates are going to increase half a percent every two years. Now, they might not, but that's okay. That's going to put me in a better situation if they don't. But total, again, totally up to the user. When you guys download the spreadsheet, you can put in whatever you like for yourself. And so I'm actually going to, Joe, you're the lending expert. I'm going to use your assumption. Okay. And I actually put in here set between every property, it increases by a half a percent. And I have no idea we'll do the model, so we will find it out together. And just so you guys know, listening to this, this is not meant to be a tutorial using the spreadsheet. This is meant to walk you through the story. So please stay focused on the big picture and the talking points, not what variables we're updating, what cells we're doing. There's a separate video for that. We just want you to focus on the big picture of putting all this together. So note a property manager, $1,000 a month in savings. And per Joe's advice, we're going to do a half percent interest rate increase. We're going to buy property one, property two, property three. So if we buy property one at 4%, property two is 4.5, property three is 5%. So every property goes up half a point. So what we're going to do here now is uh, this spreadsheet uh, is actually uh, Joe's spreadsheet. Put in the first property, we put in a 5% down payment. And actually, I plugged in the exact same numbers or almost the exact same numbers from the deal analysis we talked about in the previous module or two modules ago. So purchase price of $375,000. Uh, 
uh, acquisition cost of just under $7,500, which includes appraisal, inspection, all the title costs. Plus, he did buy some interest rate buy-down, $1,540 for uh, the loan cost through Joe, his almost $19,000 down payment, total investment of $27,765. And his interest rate back then was 3.875. So Joe, since you're the, the expert here, uh, should we keep this rate or should we lower it to what things are today actually? Um, again, because I'm ultra conservative, I say you leave that because this is a real transaction. No need to skew the numbers. I agree with that. So monthly rental income, we're putting $3,200 a month in here because this is the income we put in here for once he moves out. Uh, so when he moves out, his plan is to rent four bedrooms at $800 a piece. Now, he may be able to rent the fifth bedroom uh, for more money, but he may not. But right now, this is his plan. So this is what we're going to model. We put in a 5% vacancy, 3% rent increase, and 3% appreciation. Pretty conservative numbers, right? I agree, yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, taxes, we put in 2224 We put in his property insurance in 978 uh, We're using 8% repairs and reserves maintenance, so base 8% of his rents. So that's just over $3,000 a year. Since he's house hacking, he had, he's paying for utilities, $1,200 a year for water sewer, $300 for trash, $1,500 for electric, $600 for internet. Now, one of the changes I made from the spreadsheet yesterday, because uh, Joe's spreadsheet automatically calculates PMI, and I had built a spreadsheet before Joe had put that uh, nice feature in there. So I went there and actually got the real PMI number, and it was just about $900 a year. So this was lower than what we modeled yesterday. So then if we go to the cash flow tab, it's going to show us our numbers. So we estimated about $5,000 a year in cash flow. Now it's showing about $5,600 a year in cash flow. And that's mostly due to that PMI difference I just talked about. So on this next page, and this is a, this is a brand new page on here. And I need to get a, a window up here to hide a few cells. This is the summary page on the spreadsheet. Um, and so what it shows, it shows the year we're in. So it shows years 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And then it shows how much money you're saving per year. Then it shows the cash flow while you're living at the property. And this is so you can adjust if you're, uh, you know, it assumes neutral cash flow at $0. Maybe if you're making a few bucks or if you're, you know, negative a few bucks, you put that number in here. And he was negative about 250 a month. I say negative. That was his like, expense to live in the property, right? Was that what we calculated the other day? Yep. So I'm gonna put 250 in here just to add things up, you know, as accurate as possible. And then what this does as we go through these four properties, it's gonna show the cash flow and equity build for every single property as we go through it. So property two, three, and four, we don't own them yet, so there's nothing there. And then the very far right it shows a column what your total cash and your savings account is. Now, as we also talked about in that previous module, we all have dedicated savings accounts where we put our money to fund our properties for operating accounts and also save for the next down payment. So this is your dedicated account for buying your properties. So at the end of year one, he's been saving $1,000 a month, uh, and then he's putting in, he's negative cash flowing about $250 a month. So $250 times 12, what's that, Joe? Uh, 250 times 12 is uh, 1500 uh, No, it's uh, 2500 bucks. All right, thank you. I just realized that's an annual number, not a monthly number there. 3000 Jeez, I'm slipping. 3000 <laughs> yeah. I'm slipping, man. Jeez. You know what it is? It's because I'm not in front of an audience anymore. I do better when I'm, when I'm under pressure. Well, all right, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make the odds go up for you then. Yeah, write, write my name down that I uh, got that one. <laughs> um, so what it shows over here then, it adds up all those numbers. It says, hey, your personal savings, you're able to save $12,000 a year, but then it subtracts out the $3,000 that you are paying to live. So end of year one, you get $9,000 in your account. So you know, $1,000 a month times 12 is 12,000. Subtract out 3,000 for your living expenses, you have $9,000 left in your account. Year two, you're not moving. Nothing has changed other than your rents go up slightly uh, and everything inflates a little bit. 
But in, at the end of year two, same thing. You have that money in there, and then you put another $9,000 in there. So he's at $18,000 in his account. Now it's time to go out there and buy the, the next property, property number two. So if we go to the other tab on the spreadsheet, you'll see it's gonna, we're gonna put 5% down. And Joe, why are we doing a 5% down conventional again for a second property? Um, because that's going to get you your best rate of return. You can't do 3% down for conventional because you're no longer a first-time home buyer. And since you already own a property, you can't do a new FHA loan. So really what you're doing is that 5% down for that single-family home uh, on a new conventional property to minimize your down payment, keep as much cash and savings as possible so you can buy your third and fourth property. So remember, we bought the house for, I think it was three seventy-five, dollars uh, And now we've gone two years. And Jeff, what happens with real estate every year? Usually it goes up. Yep, I should say, you're right. It usually goes up. And so that's exactly what we assumed here. And we took our variable. I think I put 3% in here for rent or price appreciation. Yep, so we're saying properties go up by 3% a year. And that is conservative. Might be higher, might be lower. Uh, but again, this is modeling. So now if you do 375 times 3% times 3%, the purchase price is now 397. We're assuming acquisition costs have gone up a little bit too, so they're at $7700 now, and loan cost, uh, that saves the same at 1540. So now its total initial investment is $29,000. Uh-oh. Here's a problem. How much cash do we have in the, in the account? We have $18,000. So what can we do here? Well, we can go back and adjust the model and say, hey, you know what? We can save more per month and get it up to that point. Or it might be one of those things you look at and say, man, if I gotta get, if I'm expecting to put $30,000 down the next property and it looks like I can't save there, well, what am I gonna do? Well, buying a lower price property is gonna be a little bit difficult. If you can save more, absolutely do it. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. What are some other things we could do here, Joe? So we got the inputs here. We got $7,500 in acquisition cost. $1,500 in loan cost. What jumps out to you as an idea? Um, a couple things. Number one, you could wait longer, right? Maybe we need to wait longer to save up for monthly payment. Um, number two, maybe you could get the seller to pay some closing costs for you. Uh, maybe if the seller could contribute $5,000 towards your closing costs, would cover a bulk, a bulk of those costs. Number three, maybe you could uh, select a higher interest rate and have the lender pay some of your closing costs for you. That's a plan that we offer. We don't have people do it all, very often, but it is an option. Um, I think those would be the three that would quickly jump out at me. Number four, I guess, actually, you could get a gift from a family member. Brother, sister, aunt, uncle could provide you with uh, five, ten, twenty thousand dollars as a gift to help with your down payment as well. Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the, you know, this is. Uh, one of the things the spreadsheet points out is like, wow, we don't have enough money to put in there. Well, how can we get around it? So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go back. Actually, should we change the personal savings rate, Joe, or should we uh, have the closing costs wrapped into the purchase price? What do you feel Ooh, like doing? Th th that's a good idea. Let's, uh, let's have the closing costs wrapped into the purchase price. Okay. And we'll talk more about this in a future module, but I'm going to come in here and basically, just for simple math, I'm going to round up to a 410 purchase price. And what that will do, we're going to say acquisition costs are, I'm going to have to finagle it now to lower the account down. Um, and so what we're doing, hey, we're paying a little bit more, but now we have less cash out of pocket. All right, so now it says we need $20,000 cash to close. And I mean, Jeff, I want to loop you back in here because we've talked about this in the past, but on your current house hack, what did you do? Or what did you have the sellers do? I had them uh, cover some, uh, lower the interest, pay off the PMI, and also pay down the interest rate. Yeah. And so halfway through the, or you know, partway through the contract, we, ways, we raised the purchase price by 5K, have them pay for, prepay the PMI. And then you had quite a bit of inspection items come up on your inspection objection. And rather than fixing it, you took a, credit, a seller credit at closing to help cover some of those expenses. So now it says cash and savings is $18,000. Oh, we need $20,000 to close. That's close enough. We'll say you, you wait a month or you borrow, you get like $2,000 from mom and dad to help you out there. Again, this isn't perfect. This is just help, help you think about things as they come up. So you buy 
your third property, or I'm sorry, you buy your second property in year three. So now our cash flow is uh, we're getting $7,000 from our first property because that is we're running in rooms by room at $3,200 a month after all the expenses. And this is also subtracting out repairs and reserves and saying you're spending that or putting in a separate account. You have $7,000 at the end of the year. Oh, well, we got to put in that you're spending $3,000 a year to live in the property. So I'm going to put that in the cells here. So at the end of year three, you've got $4,200 in total property cash flow, meaning your $7,000 in cash flow from your renters, subtracts out your $3,000 from your living expenses, adds your $12,000, you have $14,000 in your, in your savings account. Again, we're buying a property every single two years. In your uh, year four, your second year of owning this property, rents have gone up on your first property, you're still spending $3,000 a year to live there. You're still saving $12,000 a year. Now you have about $31,000 in your checking account. Now it's time to go buy your third property. Well, let's go see if you have enough money. And I actually have no idea if we do or if we don't. Um, so we'll go see. So two big things here that have changed on this property is that the purchase price is now up to $434,000. And so what this is assuming is it's saying, oh, you bought the previous place at $410,000, and that's because we raised the price to wrap in the closing cost. And now it says, hey, that's appreciated two times, that's appreciated 3%, 3%. So it's going to assume that we are going to wrap in our closing costs again. Maybe we need to, maybe we don't. But you can see here, it shows a negative acquisition cost, and that's just to offset everything here. Uh, but then the total investment to cash to close is about $21,000. So, Joe, did that make sense how I explained that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And if you wanted to go back and compare this to scenario number one, just change your acquisition cost back to roughly $7,000. Oh, on this, yeah. yeah. So we'll Let's put just that say in, in this case, you, you don't increase the, prop the value of the property in order to include your closing costs, right? Because one of the important points that we talked about early on in our modules was it's not going to be the same every time. And you can't get stuck on, I have to do it this way or I have to do it that way. And Jeff, let me put you on the spot. Uh, you don't always buy multi-units, right? No. And you don't always buy only single family homes, right? Nope. You adapt to what the market presents you. And this is the same thing here. We're going to adapt to maybe on one, we've got to increase the purchase price. Maybe on another, uh, we've got to pay the closing costs out of pocket because you've done both of those scenarios, right, Jeff? Correct. Yep. So Perfect. on this one, guys, um, I'll give it to the panel here. So should we keep the purchase price increase to have the sellers pay closing cost, or should we lower the purchase price and pay closing costs out of pocket? What do you guys feel like doing? Seller pay closing costs. Okay. A vote Perfect. for that, Joe. What's your vote? I'll vote seller paid closing costs as well. All right. I'll vote for that too. So I'm going to change the acquisition cost back to about a negative $2,000 just to offset everything. Again, this is ballpark. If $300 in year five blows up your plan, you got bigger issues. Just to be very blunt. Go back to slide uh, number one and see the quotes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if $300 is a, is a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we just said, because I, I, we're going to keep reiterating that, Not, I don't want to sound harsh, but I want to give it, I see people get so stuck upon little variables in the future, it's pointless to. Uh, but this is the rough modeling that I think is a good balance of planning and realizing that, hey, you know what hits the fan. So now our total initial investment is about 21000 and change. But if we come back to our summary tab, we have $31,000 cash in our checking account. Great. That means we can afford to buy it. Something else a spreadsheet's not accounting for is that, hey, every time you buy a property, you need another six months worth of PITI and operating account. So it's not that fancy to calculate that, but that's something you want to keep in mind as you go forward. So since we don't have that account for, the more cash from the bank is always the better. Oh, but what do we see here? Interest rates at 4.875% now. The first property was at 3.875. The next one was, was at 4.375. Now, this one's at 4.875 because we put in the variable here. So every property we buy, interest rates go up half a point. And I think an important point there, 
we don't want to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. We want this to be like a worst case scenario that once you begin down this house hacking path, every single time the market gets worse. We're only appreciating at 3% and we're only incre- we're increasing interest rates by a half of a percent every two years. All right. So think about that. If the market happens to be better, your results are going to simply be better. So when we get to the very end, I want you to keep that in mind. We're looking at worst case scenario here because we're not trying to show some pie in the sky. This is only going to work one out of a million times. We want to show worst, worst case scenario to see if this still works. But what else has gone up? Well, we start out at rents at $3,200 a month. Well, we're assuming rents go up 3% a year. Well, that would be $3,600 a month now. So year over year, rents have gone up, which is historically true in the Denver market. Now, the other thing, taxes have gone up. Property insurance has gone up. Repairs and maintenance have gone up. Every single thing has gone up by uh, inflation rate, 3%. I can't remember if I said that in the previous property, but all those expenses in that property went up as well. And I also made his PMI go up as well. And Joe, I have no idea here. His PMI in the first property is $900 a year. The second one's 1000 Next one's $1,100. I just bump things up $100 a year because I have very, no very idea reasonable. what to go off of. Yeah, very reasonable. Okay. And then we also got his internet expense down here as well. It started at $600. Five or six years down the road, it's about six seventy-five a year. So if we go back to the summary tab, I'm gonna keep saying that he's spending three thousand dollars a year to live in, and maybe it's a few dollars more because of inflation. But again, those are minor details. So now at year five, this is the end of year five. He spent two years in property one, two years in property two. Now in property three for one year, he's still saving $12,000 a year, subtracts out the $3,000 a year for living expenses. But now that first property is cash flowing $8,900 a year because he's renting room by room with no property management. Property number two, even though he bought for a higher purchase price, then we raised the purchase price to pay for closing costs and interest rates went up a half a, uh, half a percent. He's cash flowing about $5,700 a year. So his total cash flow between the two properties is about $13,000. And his cash and savings account is $33,000. So that takes his previous balance from the year before. And then his savings rate plus his cash flow. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'll read these numbers here. At the end of year four, he had $31,000 in his account. Then at the end of year five, he had $33,000 in his account. It only went up by $2,000. What you're not seeing in the number here that I was talking about is that out of that amount of money, he paid $27,000 to purchase the property. So even he's getting this tipping point now between cash flow and savings rate, even though as he buys another property, his cash flow is increasing enough to help keep his account growing every single year. So it's really cool stuff. The other thing over here is the net worth. And this is something we have not talked about yet, is that, great, we want cash flow, but Joe, as I own property, what else happens? They generally appreciate, Chris. Yeah. They appreciate, and your tenants pay off your your mortgage payments for you. So you start building equity. So property one has over $100,000 in equity. Property two has over $70,000 in equity. Property three, even though you just bought it, you know, you're upwards of $40,000 in equity between your down payment and some appreciation. So a $250,000 net worth. That's pretty impressive. I mean, if you guys don't understand the power of that, you can't just get fixated on cash flow, but having a net worth of a six-figure net worth, it's pretty badass. How can I, Joe, emphasize that point for me? Because I, this is something people often look over. Yeah. I mean, again, this is worst case scenario. And in five years, we've invested, what did we invest? We invested like $25,000 on the first one, $20,000 on the second one, and basically $30,000 on the third one. So twenty, so $75,000. And we now have $266,000 in net worth. So we've gotten more than 300% return on our investment in five years. Not to mention, we've been living at a, a cost of living for $250 a month. I don't know about anybody else on the call, but my house payment is sure, surely more than $250 a month. I can't even rent a bedroom. Jeff, can I rent one of your bedrooms for $250 a month? I probably can't, right? No, maybe a closet. 
Yeah. Just, just like not even a walk-in, right? Just a sliding door. Yeah, I got to sleep a... like standing up, yeah. you know? So I think, again, that goes back to that. We're showing the worst case scenario and look at how good these results are. Um, and Jeff, you don't have to give us your numbers, but you've done this. You've done house hacking a couple of times in a row. Would you say these are realistic results? Yeah, actually, in a, way, in a way, it establishes better habits because now you'll start seeing like, oh, I'm, I could save all this money now. Um, and then you save it, invest it, and then you find other ways to you just get better. So each house hack, it's actually it strengthens your financial position because you no longer have to worry about um, you're covering your living expenses and then some. So eventually, you're going to cover all your living expenses and all your costs, and eventually, like you could have that ability to start make like living above um, what your total cost for all your expenses um, if you do this correctly. So that's what's kind of interesting. You get better each year. Very cool. So year six, not much has changed again. We are still living in property number three. And we're just sitting there collecting more rent from property one, property two, while we're being great landlords and increasing our rent every single year on those. So at the end of year six, our cash in our savings account is about $59,000. Okay, that's plenty of money, or it should be plenty of money to go out there and buy our fourth and final house hack. So we got $59,000 in that account. I'm going to go over to the uh, fourth inputs tab. And now the purchase price is $461,000 because we're, you know, what, seven years in the future? Properties keep appreciating. We're putting 5% down. Uh, should we go ahead and wrap in the closing costs on this one to you guys? I feel like we should, but what do you guys think? Sounds good. All yeah. right. So we still have about a negative 2,000 acquisition cost in there to offset loan costs and things. So it's total cash to close is about $22,500. Well, that is way less than $59,000 account. So think about this for a second. Great. You know what? Maybe we don't want to wrap in the closing costs. Maybe we'd rather do something else with the money. Maybe we put a little bit more money down. Maybe we prepay mortgage insurance. Maybe I buy the interest rate down. The whole point here is not for us to figure out what you're doing in year, whether it's seven or eight. The whole year is year, the whole point of this is to help you get thinking about what you can do. And every time you buy a property, it's a different ball game. You may do something on property one, but property two is different. But the interest rate now is 5.375%. So the interest rate has increased by a half a percent um, from that previous property. So we started at 3.875. Now we're at 5.375%. And just so you guys, to be clear out there, the other properties you purchased, they stayed at those previous interest rates. This interest rate is only for the, this property we're buying. Now, the total monthly room-by-room -room rental income is $3,821 a month. We're keeping vacancy at 5%, uh, rent increase at 3 appreciation 3%. Then all the other expenses, taxes, insurance, uh, repairs and maintenance, utilities, uh, internet, PMI, everything has gone up. So let's look at the specific, specific property performance. And even, this is when it's a rental property, even at the higher interest rate and higher uh, cost, if he's getting rents of $3,800 a month, the property will cash flow. So that's a great sign to check. I was expecting native cash flow. So coming back here to the spreadsheet, we are in year seven. We bought the first, we bought our fourth property. The first property is cash flowing over 10,000 bucks a year. Property two is about $7,500 a year, and property three is about $4,600 a year. Let me put in my negative $3,000 on here for our living expenses. And so now our total cash in our savings account at the end of year seven is $68,000. And we're having about, you know, not accounting our living, not including our living expenses, we have about $22,000 a year in cash flow. Now, keep in mind, that's impressive, but keep in mind, you're also uh, self-managing. You're also doing room-by-room -room rental. So you're doing more work, but you're making more cash flow. So just fast forward to the end of year eight. Uh, now, at this point, the spreadsheet stops 
assuming you're buying properties because at the end of you know eight years and four houses, you might be getting fatigue, uh, which is very realistic. Joe, you've been doing loans for a while. Uh, can you recall what's the what's the longest you've seen people do the nomad method for? How many properties? How many? Three years? to four houses. I have one client that's done it seven times, and she and her husband are an anomaly. Most people three to four times over the course of a six to eight year period. This is very very accurate. Um, you know the reality is the numbers work out a lot better than this. Um, you know because we put in here a lot of kind of the worst case scenarios when suddenly you're making cash flow of twenty five thirty forty thousand dollars a year moving into a new house doesn't seem that appealing anymore um so a lot of people think oh yeah i'm just gonna keep doing this over and over and over again you're not you're gonna do it three four times at the most like i said i've got one client that's done it seven times and they're an anomaly um so i think this three to four times is very realistic Hey, Jeff, I know you're on your third one. Do you yeah. have like a, a, a number, an end target in mind for you? How many times are you going to do it? I want to do it eight just for Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I you, might say that. you know what? I want you to achieve that goal, Jeff. <laughs> All right. So we'll come back in like eight years or five years and see this. Um, so at the end of year eight, now on the spreadsheet, you know, this is our second year of living in our fourth property with having three roommates and having, you know, managing three of the rental properties where we are self-managing room by room rentals. But our total property cash flow, not including our $3,000 a year in living expenses, is about $25,000 a year. Our cash and our savings account, this is our real estate investing account, has $103,000 and you have a net worth of $591,000. Yeah, at this point, you got options. As Joe just said, a lot of people stop because they get tired of moving. They're making good cash flow. They're like, hey, I may not need to go out there and keep doing this forever and ever and ever again. But if you're making twenty-five grand a year in cash flow, you got $100,000 in a bank account, and your net worth is over $500,000, you got options. And what can you do with that? Well... You could sell a property and go buy another property. You know, sell your first property and go buy a bigger property. Uh, you know, a, a small apartment building if you wanted to. Uh, you could start paying off these properties. You could do nothing, and you could go out there and just take the cash flow and the cash in the savings account and go out there and just keep buying more properties at a twenty or twenty five percent down payment through a landlord uh, loan. You know, just through that traditional landlord loan that most people buy rental properties through. So we'll talk more about some options you have and use some examples uh, towards the end of this course. Uh, we'll go through a few examples there of refinancing a property, of selling a property and doing a 1031, of refinancing to lower interest rate. So we'll walk through some examples here. But right now, we just want to talk about the accumulation phase of buying properties. And then a little bit later on this course, we'll talk about some strategies you have. Because what happens as you own property for the long run you're financially disciplined, and you let the market do its thing, your wealth increases. Net worth goes up, your cash increases, your cash flow increases. That all means you have options, options, options. So gentlemen, before we uh, flip away from the spreadsheet, got any remarks on here? I think my only question, and I'm assuming we're going to look at this, but what happens after year eight, year 10, year 12, year 15? All right. All right. Let's go. Let's let's reveal the curtain. So what this spreadsheet assumes is that you're not going out there and, you know, it's not subtracting out any money from where you're living in a property. So it's not saying, hey, you move from property four to property five. It does not subtract it from your cash or savings account, but you can figure that on your own. But once you move out of that property, if you're still saving 12,000 bucks a year, your first property is cash flowing twelve thousand or almost thirteen thousand bucks a year. Property two is ninety five hundred bucks a year. Property three is sixty five hundred bucks a year. Property four is thirty four hundred bucks a year. Your cash flow is now thirty two thousand dollars a year, and your cash and savings and equity goes up. Now let's jump out to year twenty, and this is a big jump. And take this with a grain of salt because this is all just you know assumptions out here. But property one is cash flowing twenty six thousand bucks a year. Property two is twenty three thousand bucks a year. Property three is twenty thousand bucks a year, and property four is seventeen thousand bucks a year. That's eighty eight thousand dollars 
in future cash flow. Now, that's in future dollars, not today's dollars. But I mean, $88,000 on four properties in 20 years from now, I mean, that's that's a livable amount of money, I would think, or very close to it. And so basically, if you do nothing else, but just have the discipline to not be an idiot and go gamble your money away and rack up credit card debt, you have your retirement done. Now, Joe, I have a net worth of $1.7 million. If I come to you and say, hey, Joe, I got these properties I bought you know, about you know, 15 to 20 years ago, just been paying my payments every single month. We have all this equity in here. What could I do with that? Man, the options would be almost limitless. You could take cash out of those properties to buy one, two, four, ten additional properties. We could sell one of those, one or two of these properties and pay off the others and not have any mortgage payment. You could sell these properties in 1031 into something bigger and uh, you know, getting better cash flows. Uh there's the options are almost unlimited. Uh, I mean, if you have that much equity, that much cash flow, assuming you've been making all your mortgage payments and you still have good credit, the world is your oyster. You know, you could go out and do just about whatever you want with your real estate investing. And so we'll just kind of fast forward to year 40. I'm just going to sk- skip way over because in year 40, with this spreadsheet model, every single property is paid off because we all have on, we all got 30-year fixed loans through Joe. So 40 years out, every property is paid off. My first property is cash flowing $84,000 a year. Second property, $84,000 a year. Third property, $84,000 a year. Fourth property, $85,000 a year. That's $338,000 a year in cash flow. Now, of course, that is in future inflated dollars, so that's going to be a lot less than it is today. But that's a lot of cash flow and a lot of equity. I mean, it says if everything appreciates 3% a year, those properties are worth over a million dollars by then. Which, hey, I look at that, it might be hard to believe, but I think back to like places I've lived and the, you know, one community I lived in, uh, you know, houses were selling for $700,000, $900,000. And I used to go walk, uh, every day I'd go walk my dog on the trail. You know, there's this green belt we had. And I would st- stop and chat with people sometimes, but I, uh, one day I stopped and chat with an older gentleman. He was probably, you know, 75, 80 years old. And we were just chatting for a few minutes. Come to find out he was the original owner in one of these houses. He and his wife bought them back in like 1951. He bought for $6,000. And now it's worth $700,000, $800,000. So when you hear these numbers that, oh my gosh, a, a house in the world will be over a million dollars in the future. Yeah, it sounds unbelievable, but think back to this guy that bought his house in 1950-something for $6,000, now he can sell it for $700,000, $800,000. It sounds unbelievable, but that's what happens. So if you got that cash flow, that equity, you're retired. All right, so I'm going to jump back off the spreadsheet. Um, So just talking about some other strategies here to take a step back. Because what we just walked through was, I'll say, about the best strategy that works right now in the Denver market. Go buy a single-family home, rent out a few bedrooms, and do it every year, every other year. And that's going to be the most simplistic and about the best strategy right now with everything being considered. But one of the first things I said in this presentation was that, hey, it has to work for you. So real briefly, I want to talk about my strategy because I want to do the strategy, um, but I've got you know a wife, kids, dogs. That's, you know, moving every couple of years with roommates is not great for a family life. So what we opted to do was that, uh, and this just worked personally for us, where my wife's mother, uh, she wanted to move uh, from Nevada to come out here to Colorado to be near grandkids. My wife's the only daughter. So she said, hey, I want to move out there. Uh, and she looked at buying places, but she wanted a smaller, you know, a smaller condo or smaller apartment. Uh, we wanted a bigger house with bedrooms and a backyard and all that stuff for kids and dogs. And it came out to be like, hey, well, if, if you want to buy a place and you want to help us out with daycare, what if we got a place with a mother-in-law suite? So we couldn't find one, but we got a place and we built out the basement to mother-in-law suite. So what that does for us is I'm not out there buying a new property every couple of years. But what that does is it gives us a lot of monthly savings. So we have reduced savings, uh, reduced savings, reduced daycare costs. Uh, we have shared expenses that are lower. So conservatively, we're saving about $2,500 a month in income or in expenses. 
So that's a lot of money, $2,500 a month in expenses right there we're saving. Plus, we have a better quality of life. We have less stress because we have you know, another adult around to help out with date nights or daycare or something that's like, oh my gosh, just, hey, watch the kids for 20 minutes. I got to go, go out and take out the trash. Uh, so a lot less stress. Um, and also, she helps out with meal prep. You know, She's retired. She has the kids. A few nights a week, she cooks us meals. It's, it's great. So not just the financial side, but also the quality of life side. So as you look at this, like, oh, that sounds great. If it doesn't work for you, if you can find a way to reduce your living expenses, I would absolutely say 100% do it. And so after many, many months of talking and brainstorming ideas, that's the strategy that worked for me and my wife. But we also have a very unique situation. I know not many people can have their mother or mother-in-law move in with them. The other strategy, if you said, oh, man, I just, you know, I can't, I can't have roommates living with me. Well. We've got clients that are just doing the nomad-only strategy. Uh, a couple examples top of my mind is a, f- a few weeks ago, we did a deal analysis case study for a family that was do- that's doing nomading in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, wife, uh, you know, Husband, wife, two kids, two, three years old, and they want to go out there and buy a bunch of properties before the kids enter kindergarten and first grade. They want roommates. So they already owned the house, but they said, hey, we want to go out there and buy another house. And here's the big difference between house hacking and nomading. If you're nomading, you have no roommates, so therefore you have no immediate rental income to offset your one, your current expenses. So for some people, that might be an issue. For others, it's not. But if, you know, some people need that money to go out there and save the next down payment. So if you need that, you got to figure out what to do. And in their case, what they did was they bought a place back in, I think it was like 2012, 2013. They lived there for a while, and then they got into real estate investing. And they went and talked with Joe, and they said, hey, we want to start this. And they met with me and my team. They met with Joe. We had some back and forth. We had a lot of emails back and forth, and we figured out the right strategy. And what they did is they said, hey, we're going to go out there and do the nomad only. It works for their lifestyle. But to help them get cash, to have cash reserves, and to fund the next two or three down payments, they went with Joe and did a cash out refinance. So they had equity built in the first property, just like we talked about in the spreadsheet. Between debt, uh, debt pay down and market appreciation, they had a good amount of cash in their house. So they took out you know, a good amount of cash that could help fund their next couple of down payments. And so that is their strategy to go out there and use the powerful owner-occupied financing to start buying properties. We got a lot of other clients out there that are at a stage in their life where they don't want roommates. Uh, so they go out there and buy a place, live with themselves, and after a year or two, then they move out. And we always talk to them and say, hey, great, I have no problem with the strategy, but if you want to do this, how are you funding the next property? But between their savings rate and all that, they're able to. Great. So Jeff, let's, let's talk about your strategy for a minute here. Um, I know we've talked about it in the past, but kind of share with, share with us what your strategy is just from a high-level overview, because we yeah, all have so, different ones. Yeah, so I basically combined uh, extreme version of house hacking and nomading at the same time with the goal of... The first goal is to live for free, so eliminate my housing expense. Second goal is to make $1,000 over my mortgage payment um, with all... Rent by either by renting rooms, by renting out uh, the mother-in-law space, or a combination of that strategy, and then with the savings plus that extra cash flow, use that amount uh, one year later to buy the next one. Um, yeah, I know the giving up uh, privacy and not getting all the benefits of um, you know like if we just lived there lived. At a house by herself, um, so there is some negatives, but you know I, we love it. Um, I do it with a partner of mine, and couldn't be happier doing it. It's just a lot of fun, and we like trying new neighborhoods out. Uh, we we actually look at it more like a fun experience um, than just oh we got to move again, oh we got to deal with you know roommates again or new tenants. We look at it like oh let's find the most qualified ones um, based on these uh, quantitative factors and then um, organize in such a way that's like a very welcoming community and, you know, a place that's, uh, 
very, you know, people keep themselves and you don't really feel like I know some people sometimes when they've had roommates in the past or other tenants live next to them, like, you know, they're there or you see, you know, they leave a mess so they don't pick up after themselves. We establish a, these really good rules in place and uh, um, set the example. So people keep things clean. We haven't, I haven't dealt with this yet. Like someone dealt with anything where people left like, like even dishes in the dish, like uh, on the sink yet or something like petty like that or eating a sandwich that was some other roommates or tenants. Um, so overall, it's extreme version and it works for myself and my partner. But I know um, it's not for everybody, but it works. Um, that's our advantage over other people at the stage of our life. And you're going to do it eight times, right? To, to beat yeah, Joe? I, uh, I want Joe to say, I know someone that did it eight times. Just for, Nothing just would make me happier. <laughs> like I said, you're the poster child for house hacking. Um, you know, but but I, I want to actually think about that for a second. You're spot on. Um, Chris, go back real quick to the the slides, if you would, or the spreadsheet, excuse me. Um, think about this do? for a second. In 20 years, you know, so so Jeff, he's great. He's got a great attitude about it. He's having a good time. He and his, his partner like to try out different uh, different areas. I think it's fantastic. But think about where he's going to be at in 20 years. Um, he's going to achieve $88,000 of cash flow with a million and a half dollars of equity or $1.7 million of equity from doing something that he enjoys doing anyways, right? So think about that for a second. This is it's it's a business, but it's something that allows him to live um, very well now because he's not having to pay fifteen hundred or eighteen hundred dollars for a mortgage payment. Right? He can live um, nearly for free. He can build incredible wealth that's going to be with him twenty years from now, and it's something that he enjoys and he would be doing anyways. So I think it's it's really a success story that that anybody can achieve. And and you know we've had dozens of house hackers you know at various points along this journey, and and I think the numbers are real and they speak for themselves. Yeah. And actually, Joe, if Jeff gets to eight properties, his cash will be like double that. That will be like $170,000. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I, I would love nothing more than to see that happen. Yeah. I agree. That'll be, uh, that'll be a fun retirement party. <laughs> um, absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. So I know we went through a lot in here, and this was a very dense subject, uh, but we wanted to start talking about the details you need to think about and really the important points and that, hey, things will change. Uh, so plan on that, but get that loose plan in place. It doesn't have to be perfect. And then also realize that what fits well on that spreadsheet is not going to fit well for life. What works well for me will not work well for you. What works well for Jeff will not work well for you, vice versa. But you got to find that right strategy for you. And this is something that you know we will help you out with. Um, so whenever I meet with clients, we always talk about these strategies. Joe does the same thing from the financial aspect. Jeff can do the same thing with other house actors if they need to as well. Make sure you read and plug or read the Denver Real Estate Investing Strategies book. I think that's a really great resource for local investors. And if you want to get your plan in place, go write your own chapter, submit it for the next edition. Whether you're listening to this in 2020 or 2024, write your chapter. This thing will be coming out for a long time and get it in there. Uh, submit, read, learn, all that good stuff. And again, of course, if you guys need to reach us, me for real estate, Joe for lending, Jeff for help with your house hack, go to denverinvestmentrealestate.com slash HH help. And also on the spreadsheet, uh, you know, we will be doing future webinars or end in-person classes on how to use it. Like I said, this was not meant to be a tutorial using a spreadsheet. This was meant to help give you that, that paint that picture. But visit the website and keep your eye on the events calendar or reach out to me and Joe if you need to go out there and see when that next class or webinar is. So I appreciate everyone listening here. And Joe or Jeff, if you guys got any final closing thoughts? No, I think this covers it. It's great. Yeah, cool. it's definitely a long-term mindset's the way to go. Wonderful. All right. Well, Joe, Jeff, I appreciate it. Everyone out there, have a great day. Thanks, Chris. Hey, thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you have any questions or need clarification, 
shoot me an email. Or if you want to grab a physical book copy of the Ultimate House Hacking Guide, also send me an email. My email is chris at denverinvestmentrealestate.com. A couple other services that we offer, if you need help putting together your investment plan and buying your first or your next house hacking property, reach out to me. That's what we specialize in. If you need help with lending and financing, reach out to Joe Massey. That's his specialty. And if you need help in stabilizing and operating your house hack property, reach out to Jeff White, as that's his specialty. Now, all their contact details in the show notes. If you have trouble finding them or you just want to keep it simple, shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer all your questions and also connect you with Joe, Jeff, or whoever you need to talk to. All right. We'll see you next episode.